Whoa. Right? Whoa. It's really good to be with all of you. Isn't it great to be together as the family of God, together with each other and together with God? Yeah. Praise him. Uh, It's the big homecoming weekend for uh, Bozeman and Belgrade high schools, right? Uh, And uh, 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 unfortunately, the Hawks didn't fare so well. I didn't pay attention to what, but what happened in Belgrade? What? I heard they lost. Yeah, they lost. Yeah, jeez. Wow. It is not our year, is it? Wow. Uh, Yesterday, I was talking to one of our sons, the one who was taking a date last night uh, to the big dance, and I was talking to him yesterday morning, and I was telling him all the things that I thought he needed to say to his date's parents when he picked her up. And I kind of like stood up pretty tall on a big soapbox there at our house, and I told him that I thought that you need to let her parents know that you know that their daughter is their most precious possession in the entire world. She is their most precious thing, and that he would never, ever, 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 ever do anything to cause her harm or pain, and that he is so grateful to them for letting them take her to the dance that night, and that he pledges, he pledges that he will have her home before she is supposed to be home. And that he would take fantastic care of their precious, delightful, beautiful daughter. And as I'm saying all this, you know, like I'm kind of getting all animated, right? And I'm watching my son's eyes just totally gloss over. Like he's just looking at me. And so I paused. And I thought, well, this will be the time when he responds. And I'm not going to tell you which son it is. Just suffice it to say it was one of them. The older one's old enough to, you know, Preston and Dylan, they're not taking girls to the homecoming dance yet, right? And, and, and so I'm thinking that he's going to respond with this like, yes, dad, I am on it. No, that is not so much what he said. He said, dad, uh, how about I just tell him, thank you for letting me take your daughter to the dance. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, life gets in the way of vision, doesn't it? Life gets in the way of vision. And so I said, okay, but when you've mastered the English language next year, you have to say that. You have to make that speech to your date's parents. And he's just shaking his head, poor kid. We're in a series that we call Famous Last Words. It's a look at the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. Today we're actually going to press into the Revelation's last word on Christ of all things. And some material that Eugene Peterson's written has been a great resource for this message and the entire series. And the Revelation's last word on Christ, it's a powerful word. Let me set it up for you just a bit. Let me set it up this way. Uh, Not long ago, I finished reading the Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz's book called Onward. I highly recommend it. It is a fantastic read on leadership, both personal and organizational leadership, and on one of the outstanding companies in the world. The book is called Onward, and it's the story of how, in the year 2007, Starbucks began to fail itself. Do you remember 2007? Starbucks, they began to fail themselves. Now, the downward spiral of Starbucks, it wasn't due to a single bad decision, a tactic, a person. Instead, rather, it was a slow, quiet, incremental damage that Schultz likens to a single loose thread that unravels a sweater inch by inch by inch. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And pretty soon... Decision by decision, store by store, customer by customer, Starbucks was losing many of the signature traits that they had been founded on. Schultz admits 
but the root cause of Starbucks' slide was their obsession with growth that had caused them to take their eye off of operational excellence and watch this, and become distracted from the very core of their business. And onward is the fantastic saga of how Starbucks managed to regain this ruthless focus, one cup of coffee and one customer at a time. And we who are growing in our faith in Christ, and we who are seeking closer personal relationship with Christ, we're subject to a similar downward slide suffered by Starbucks when we take our eye off of the most important thing. For Starbucks, it was taking their eye off of coffee and customers. Just as one example, did you know that for a while during Starbucks unraveling, they actually sold stuffed animals in their stores? Like, that is insane. So you'd walk into a Starbucks where for years and years they had been entirely focused on coffee, exceptional coffee, and great customer service, and they went from that to selling stuffed animals next to bags of whole bean coffee. It made absolutely no sense at all. And for we who follow Jesus Christ, our downward trajectory begins when we take our eye off of the most important person, Jesus Christ. The one who is to be at the center of every single thing in our lives. And the Revelation's last word on Christ reminds us again and again and again, Christ is at the center. Christ is at the center. Christ is at the center. If you have a Bible, you might turn to Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 12. It'll be on the screen above my head as well, if you don't have a text. Revelation 1, starting in verse 12, I'm going to read through verse 16. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. That's a woe moment. I turned to see who was speaking to me. I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were like white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Woe. We turn the page into the first chapter of the Revelation, and what do we discover? The magnificent and the ever-central Christ himself. This is the one, folks, who had been suggested, anticipated, prayed for, promised throughout the entire Hebrew Scriptures. This is the one who belongs at the center of everything. And John's vision of Jesus Christ interrupts all of our distractions that keep us from focusing on Christ and really sort of startles us with this image of Jesus Christ standing tall in the center of everything. All of a sudden, we're sitting up in our chairs, we're alert, and we find that Jesus Christ himself is the very last word. And the last word matters. Because the last word is the word that is in control of all of the preceding words. And so for thousands and thousands of years, Jesus Christ has been the goal toward which everything else was aimed. And putting and keeping Christ at the center of our lives, our ruthless focus, is one of our most serious challenges as followers of Jesus, isn't it? So many good things in this life attempt to elbow their way to the center. Not if Revelation has anything to say about it. 
So how in the world is the revelation going to present Jesus so we'll recognize that he belongs at the center? Here it is, Revelation 1, 12, and 13. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Jesus Christ at the center is revealed as the Son of Man. But what in the world is the Son of Man? What in the world? That phrase actually originates in another vision from the Bible, in the vision of a dude named Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Check this out. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone, here it is, like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Picture this in your mind's eye. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Christ is revealed in the revelation as the son of man who was first revealed in the vision of Daniel. This commanding, redeeming, glorious figure about whom a guy named Tom Howard aptly said, he, that's Jesus, is not a pale Galilean, but a towering and furious figure who will not be managed. That's Christ. That is Christ. And he is to be at the center of our everything. But now get this. Whenever Jesus used that term, son of man, to describe himself, it puzzled his contemporaries to no end. Because here he was, this ordinary, itinerant rabbi, and he's calling himself the son of man. And that made no sense to Jesus' peers. Because when they heard those words, son of man, what did they have in their minds? They had the Daniel vision in their minds. And every single time they heard Jesus use this phrase, they were going like, dude, where's the lightning? Where in the world are the flowing robes? They had expectations of the sort of revolutionary redemption when they heard the words son of man. But you see, Jesus refused time and again to call down legions of angels to establish his authority. And so their expectations were sort of dashed on the rocks, if you will. And then you run this out and you cannot imagine for one second Jesus' contemporaries being able to wrap their minds around the Son of Man all of a sudden hanging broken, beaten, bloody on a cross. They could not get their minds around that. Nor could they get their minds around the Son of Man eating dinner with prostitutes, lunching with tax collectors, wasting time blessing little children when Romans were ripe to be chased from the land, healing unimportant losers in their mind, ignoring high-achieving Pharisees, very influential Sadducees. It made absolutely no sense. This is the Son of Man? They couldn't figure it out. But you see what Jesus was doing was nothing less than juxtaposing the most glorious title you can ever imagine with the most menial lifestyle available in his culture. He talked like a king, yet he lived and behaved like a slave. He preached like one with the very highest of authority, yet lived like a vagabond. He was God, and he was man. And following Jesus in the midst of that juxtaposition was not easy, yet ever so slowly, day by day, the image of the Son of Man was assimilated by his followers into sort of the dailiness of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what it looked like to them in the first century for Jesus to be at the center. Now John's challenge 
when he penned the revelation was the second and third generation followers of Jesus Christ. Those were the congregations of the churches that John had pastored. Because you see, they would have had their heavenly vision of Christ, their Danielic vision of Christ, smothered by the realities of what they were living in and living through. That was their challenge. Because you see, these second and third generation followers of Jesus Christ, who John was pastoring in those seven churches, they were plunged headlong into suffering and tribulation and moment by moment by moment decision making regarding what it looked like for them to keep Christ in their lives at the center. These were Christians who were living in utter crisis, and their salvation had to be lived out in the midst of hate and suffering, or it wasn't going to get lived out at all. John's communities, John's congregations, they had no fantasies of heaven-hurled thunderbolts annihilating the wicked enemy of Rome. Those had been shut out of their imaginations by decades of persecution, tribulation, and bloodshed. Their danger was quite the opposite and quite the other direction. And this is our danger, folks, that following Jesus all of a sudden just gets reduced to living morally, to being virtuous, to simply being a good person. And above the fray of that temptation, John shouts through the pages of the Revelation, that is not the life of faith in Jesus Christ. He is to be at the center of everything. It is not just about being a good person. Your life is to be entirely focused and centered on him. Every decision you make is run through the grid of Jesus Christ at the center. Which means that it was time for John to reintroduce Daniel's vision of the Son of Man at the center in all his splendor. And as we start into John's centering vision of Christ, notice where in the world the Son of Man is standing, Revelation 1, 12 to 13. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. What do those lampstands represent? The church. Look at Revelation 1, 20 with me. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we're going to talk about this a whole lot more next weekend as I speak to the Revelation's last word on the church. But I want to say this now, that it is only in the environment of the church that God chooses to reveal Christ. It is only in the context of the church that God chooses to reveal Christ. And that is not an accident, nor is it an afterthought. It is God's insistence. And the vision of Christ and sort of unfurls, it unfolds with the description of his clothing, doesn't it? 113. And he was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. And before we know what the Son of Man looks like, we know what he does. Because you see, his clothing is actually what defines his role. A lot like a police officer's uniform creates a set of expectations when we meet one, don't they? And we see Jesus wearing the very same garment that was prescribed for whom? Any ideas? Got anything in your head? Prescribed for Aaron. Aaron, the Old Testament priest. Exodus chapter 29, verse 5. Check this out. Dress Aaron in his priestly garments, the tunic, the robe worn with the ephod, the ephod itself, and the chest piece. Then wrap the decorative sash of the ephod around him. Jesus, see, is the ultimate high priest who presents us to God and who presents God to us. He's bringing together what's divine and what's human. He's actually, Jesus' priest, mediating our access to God. And here's what's in view. 
this priestly image of Christ is reflective of us getting out of everything that is insufficient or oppressive and getting into what is whole and what is free. No show of hands, keep your hands down. But how many of us in this moment are living life apart from God, far from God? And we're sort of wallowing in the mire of our sin and we're wallowing in the mire of our shame because of all of that and we're sort of shackled up to all that mess. We're encumbered by it. And time and again, we found that kind of life to be totally insufficient for living the full life that God intends. How many of us are living in that very place today? The only word I can think to describe that is oppressive. It is incredibly oppressive, isn't it? But get this. In the face of the oppressiveness, in the face of being encumbered by all of that, in the face of being chained up and shackled to guilt, shame, fear, regret, all of that stuff, Jesus, as priest, sets us free from all of that. And he sets us free into what is whole. And he sets us free into freedom. He sets us free into him if we'll let him, if we'll ask him. Christ, see, bridges us to God, doesn't he? And then John shows us next. This, is, this just blows my mind. John's actually showing us Jesus' head and his hair. Revelation 1.14. Just let this wow you. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Those of you who've been around the church very long at all, do those verses sound at all familiar to you? Isaiah 1.18. Check it out. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. And then Psalm 51, 7. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. In the vision of Christ that John paints for us, we see that Christ has absolutely fulfilled those promises. He has made us clean. He is making us holy. Whoa. And then John shows us, and let let this blow you away, John shows us the eyes of Christ, the eyes of Christ. Have you ever thought about looking into the eyes of Christ? Revelation 114, here's what the Bible says, and his eyes were like flames of fire. Whoa. And scroll back through scripture in your mind's eye, and you think about all the images of fire throughout the sacred text of the Bible the pillar of fire, the burning bush, all of the altar fires, the fiery furnace, the fiery chariots, on and on and on. And what we know about fire is that it penetrates and it transforms, doesn't it? Fire penetrates and transforms. Fire's a lot like holiness. See, it gets inside of us and it utterly changes us. Fire also demands our full attention, doesn't it? Fire demands centrality. It locks us in. In the very gaze of Christ, with eyes like flames of fire, penetrate us and purify us and invade us with just a look. Christ is invading us. John then moves from eyes 
to feet, which is an interesting transition. He shows us the feet of Jesus. Verse 15, his feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. And now, John's recalling a dream from the Old Testament that King Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel had to interpret for King Nebuchadnezzar because it so weirded him out. Daniel 2, 31 to 45, if you want to look at it sometime. And in that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, there's this enormous figure. It is a statue, but it's set on this base that is utterly flawed. And then all of a sudden, this whole statue was struck by a giant rolling boulder, and it was smashed to smithereens. No wonder King Nebuchadnezzar is scratching his head. Right? Like, what in the world is that all about? And he summons Daniel to come sort of interpret it for him. And in Daniel 2.35, this is part of the dream and the interpretation. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. From a giant statue to being blown away, like chaff on a threshing floor. And you see what John's showing us here? is that there is this succession of the kingdoms of this earth that no matter how impressive nor how powerful they are, they're set on a base that is flawed. Set on a base that is absolutely flawed. And I'm gonna stick my toe in the water here and I'm sort of gonna venture out a bit. But we're hearing a lot these days about the United Nations, aren't we? And we think about the, quote, kingdoms of this earth. We think about the United Nations as being this quite impressive and powerful kingdom of this earth. But it's flawed. It is fundamentally flawed. It's set on a base that is fundamentally flawed. Why? Because it is not set on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It is not set on the foundation, a base that is Jesus Christ. Christ's kingdom isn't like that though, is it? Christ's kingdom is like his feet. Firm, strong, steadfast, unwavering. Nothing moves Christ. His feet. And then, check this out, we get to hear through the vision of John, we actually get to hear the voice of Christ. Revelation 1.15, and his voice, is this any surprise? Thundered like mighty ocean waves. Can you hear that? Thundered like mighty ocean waves waves. And Christ's voice, it is entirely commensurate with his appearance. It's awesome and it's commanding. He is at the center all the way down to the way he speaks. And if you ever heard a voice that thundered like mighty ocean waves, how are you going to respond to it? With the very best that you have, with every single thing that you are. And the source of that voice is going to be at the center of your universe, isn't it? Now up to this point in the Christ vision, John has illustrated really all these aspects of Christ being, and next John moves to showing us all about the function of Christ. Revelation 1.16, what's he doing? He's holding seven stars in his right hand. Why does the right hand matter? Because the right hand symbolizes, signifies that it is ready for use. The right hand is ready for use. Picture a soldier with a sword in his right hand. He's ready for battle. A shepherd with a staff in his right hand is ready to lead and protect his flock. A builder with a hammer in his right hand is ready to drive a 16-penny nail into a two-by-six. Because you see, the things that we hold in our right hand are what we're capable of doing, what we're ready to do. And when Christ speaks, 
Revelation 1.16, look what happens. A sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. That harkens us back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You might have these words ringing in your ear, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The image that John is portraying here is that God's will is articulated sharply and penetratingly out of Christ's mouth. He is central. And when we think about the words of Christ and their effect, they conquer, don't they? The words of Christ, the word of God, they cut through our willful resistance. They divide good from evil. They overcome rebellion. They establish righteousness. They declare the centrality of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of people in this world who see the barrel of a gun as the source of real power. But we who are people of faith in God, we know that real power, true power, proceeds from the very mouth of God, not a gun barrel. And then, this is astounding, John shows us Jesus' face. He shows us Jesus' face, verse 16. And his face, Jesus' face, was like the sun, no surprise there, in all its brilliance. Which takes us back again to the Old Testament, to Aaron the priest, his benediction. Numbers chapter 6, verses 25 and 26. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God in Christ is warmth and sunlight, isn't he? And so there you have the Christ vision of Revelation chapter 1. And I know it is a lot There is so much, there's some of it you'll remember, some of it you won't. Your notes, I think, will be helpful for when you don't remember. But for the next few minutes as we wrap up our time together, I want us to drill down into the bedrock of why in the world this vision matters and where this vision really lands for us. And this is the stuff that I'm praying really sticks in your hearts and in your minds. This is the stuff I pray sticks that you take with you. Because you see, what John's doing with this Christ vision is he's communicating to the second and third generation Christ followers who he pastored, as well as for all of us who follow behind them, that no matter where you are, no matter what your circumstances are, Christ centers our lives. He's at the center. He belongs at the center. And God only knows that we need that centering, don't we? Because many of us, we have this image of Christ in our mind's eye, And we picture him walking around ancient Palestine, trying to teach these dense fishermen what he's all about, trying to teach them what they're supposed to be all about. They're not getting it. And we see him again and again helping people. We see him healing people. We see him uttering verses that are suitable for memorization in Sunday school classes, suitable for being placed on decorative plaques and so on our walls. And it's inside of that stuff that we think that we have the real picture of the real Jesus. But John's vision reveals for us that's not it. John's vision helps us see Jesus in a way that actually helps him become central in our time, in our place, in our circumstances, no matter where you are and no matter what they are. And that might just look like something like this. As you're tempted day by day, moment by moment, to take your eye off of Christ as your focus is distracted from the centrality of Jesus Christ, 
you might just hearken back to the Christ vision of Revelation chapter one. As you forget to keep Christ at the center of your life because you're so caught up in worrying about how you're gonna make ends meet this month. You're so caught up in how this awful situation with your boss is gonna get resolved. And what do you see? You see in your mind's eye the penetrating eyes of your savior, Jesus Christ, and you're reminded he's at the center. It's him. Or maybe your attention is distracted from Christ because you feel, I just can't carry on anymore. I cannot carry on under the stress and the hardship that I've been bearing up under. And all of a sudden, what do you see? You see the strong, capable feet of Jesus Christ at the center of it all, standing firm, unwavering, no matter what's happening around him. The world can be falling apart and he's standing absolutely unmoved. Or maybe you're a person who's become so disillusioned by this world, you feel that you don't have any voice, you feel like nobody gives a rip what you say or what you think, and what do you hear? You hear the authoritative voice of the ruler of the world, the ruler of the church, Jesus Christ, at the center of everything. As lots of us are thinking about the plight of our children, grandchildren, loved ones, in the midst of all the uncertainty of these days and what do you see the vision of christ holding every single one of them in his strong capable right hand the great shepherd jesus christ standing tall regardless of the circumstances in the midst of a world political system that seems to be deteriorating more and more all around us causes us very often to scratch our heads and go what in the heck is going on what do we see we see the word of God proceeding sword-like from the mouth of Jesus and not returning void. As we wane in these days, our strength, our energy wanes, we see the presence of a radiating Christ heaping blessing and heaping life upon our dimming countenances. We see Christ in the precise center of every single thing we're facing And we realize we are not alone. He is at the center. And he's inviting us to keep our focus on him. And you see the vision of Christ at the center of everything. It can and should have the very same effect upon us that it had upon John. You see, before this vision, John's on this prison island. He's cut off from everything that he holds dear. He's distraught about that. He's piled up in a heap about that. He's crushed. And the vision of Christ at the center of the mess that John is surrounded by lifts him to his feet. And it sets him about sharing this message that no matter what, Christ is at the center. And here we are a couple of thousand years later paying attention to this message. John had a job to do and what do you know? He did it. He did it. And so do we. We folks have a job to do. Our mission given to us by Jesus himself is that we actually tell everyone we can that Christ loves them that he shows them how to live right here and right now, that he died for them because he loves them, and that he wants to break through into this world through them. But how in the world can we ever tell anyone else to keep Christ at the center unless we're keeping him at the center of our own lives? 
You want to keep your spiritual life from the same slide that caused Starbucks' downward trajectory? Just keep Christ at the center. You want to stay focused on the very mission, the very reason that God put you on this planet? Keep Christ at the center. And then would you let the vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, would you let it help you keep him at the center? I invite you to take your stuff and set it aside if you would, and I just invite you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and go to prayer if you would. Just press in with the Lord in these moments. Maybe you're a person today who's caught up in living life apart from God. Wallowing in the mire of your sin and shame. Chained up to all that, encumbered by it. And maybe you're finding more and more every day, you're finding that kind of life to be completely insufficient for living inside of the full life that God intended for you. You know, that doesn't have to be the way you live from here on out doesn't have to be the defining feature of the rest of your life because you see friends Jesus came to set you free into all that is whole and free Jesus came to set you free into him if you'll let him if you'll ask him to and today why wouldn't you ask him to why wouldn't you today step out of everything that is insufficient and oppressive step into Christ, everything that is whole and everything that is free. The invitation stands. Will you take him up on it? And if that's your desire today, I just invite you, I encourage you to just start by confessing to God. Just by saying, God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize that every single thing in my life has been going away from you and I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. Please, Jesus, I want you. I want you at the center of my life. Nothing else, no one else, only you. Jesus, please. Here's my heart. I give it to you. And I ask you, Jesus, please be about changing me. And if there's those of you who are here today who are saying yes, to Jesus. This is a real personal thing. This is between you and God, and I want you to know that no one's looking around this room but me. But if you're saying yes to Jesus today, would you just be real bold right now and just declare that with me by lifting your hand high so that I can pray with you so I can stand over here? Yes, absolutely. And in the back? Yeah, absolutely. And here? Yep. And there? Yeah, yes, absolutely. We just make sure I catch your eye, please? Yeah, you, both of you. See, two of you back there. Way to go. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Everything's becoming new for you. It's all new. Life's new. He is central. He's at the middle. Everything else revolves around him. 
So Jesus, we are in awe of you. And we celebrate you. And we're so incredibly grateful for this vision that you gave John so many thousands of years ago. And we're so privileged that we get to stand in it and sort of share in it in these moments. And God, I pray that time and again when we're distracted, when we take our eye off of you, that Jesus, you would use this vision to call us back to you. And that we would see you first and foremost, central above all. And that Jesus, you would give us the strength, the courage, the boldness, the audacity to actually keep you at the center of our life.